Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be looking at Colony. Colony was first published in Galaxy Magazine in June 1953. It was part of this explosion of publications uh, Dick had in 1953 all across the science fiction magazines of, of the time. Uh, they vary in quality, um, but they all have something interesting to say, I think. Um, so Dick really kind of came out of the gate running in terms of his creativity and the ideas he had. Um, you can usually find this one reprinted in the first volume of the collected works of Philip K. Dick, uh, the Paycheck and Other Classic Stories volume. So as always, I'll start with the plot summary. So we have Major Lawrence Hall and Lieutenant Friendly. Uh, they are on a kind of planetary survey, uh, and they discuss their amazement at this planet they're on, Planet Blue, because it has no harmful or hostile life forms. Um, this is kind of a, a completely unsullied planet, and it contradicts all their experiences in space exploration. And here we have another story of, of explorers. Uh, Dick was looking at explorers from early on. You have it in Beyond Lies the Wub, uh, where there are actually more pillagers and looking for resources. You have it in the inf Infinities, too. Uh, so Dick is building off this science fiction cliche of, of exploration, but he always has kind of a new thing to say about it. But here it starts out pretty banal, actually, just more explorers. So Friendly leaves Hall to, uh, to do his scientific, or leaves him to his scientific work. He's, you know, looking through a microscope or something. His microscope uses, then uses his eyepieces to strangle Hall. So the, the microscope comes alive and you have those long eyepieces and they kind of wrap themselves around Hall's neck. Um, Hall's able to break free of the attack and he's, you know, he blasts the microscope with his pistol. It's got a nice little... Star Wars style blaster he uses to destroy the microscope. So they have a, a briefing uh, by the commander while this is going on, and Hall barges in, you know, disrupts the meeting, and tells Friendly to follow him into his room. And and Hall begins to t explain what happened, how the microscope attacked him, and how he disintegrated it. Um, but Friendly goes and finds the microscope. He says the microscope's intact right here. What are you talking about? You know. And Hall reports himself for psychiatric screening. So we got a robot psychiatrist here, which is a nice little touch that Dick gives. Um, and it's something we're going to come back to. Uh, the Basically, the raw, broader theme of automation. But And then, of course, Dick wrote a lot about robots. Some of his most famous stories involve robotics and the line between robots and humans. Um, here we got a robot robotic psychiatrist. I think there's other examples of robot psychiatrists in his work. There's certainly examples of robotic teachers. Um, and the idea that maybe robots could be better teachers than human teachers is kind of fascinating to me as someone who's done some teaching throughout my life. Anyways, the robot kind of just collects all the data, collects all the, uh, the, the information you get from Hall and diagnoses them with a highly in a high instability ratio. That's the diagnosis, a high instability ratio. So Hall returns, Hall goes back to his quarters. He takes a shower and in the shower, he's attacked by the towel. Um, and after the shower, as Hall watches the towel, he is attacked by the chair, which he shoots also with his pistol. So um, he goes to see the commander. Not only now can he report on a microscope attacking him, he can report on a towel and a chair and other furniture and things attacking him. Um, 
The captain worries that Hull is completely going bonkers. He's completely insane, and he'll be needed to take him off duty, and this bothers him because they're on a scientific expedition of sorts, and they need their resident scientists, so it might disrupt the mission. Uh, they go to the captain, Captain Taylor, to place Hull in custody, and as they do that, they see the captain's being strangled by a rug. Uh, Morrison orders the crew its, uh, to arm itself. They begin to realize that the items attacking them are not the originals, that everything that attacks them has... Uh, has the, the original still intact, but they're being attacked by kind of a crude copy of it. Um, and this, the original is always found after they attack, the, they destroy the one that attacks them. Um, so there seems to be a foreign entity on the ship that's copying these household items. So meanwhile, attacks takes place, takes place around the base. Uh, Lieutenant Dodd is shot using by a pair of gloves with a pistol. Uh, Lieutenant Fulton, another character, has his feet dissolved by a mat. Um, another captain is digested in a car. Uh, you have a guy named Thomas who's killed by trees in the woods. So you have people all over the base um, at different ranks being killed off by material objects. The crew determines, what you probably already suspect, that the attacks are being done by organic life. That can be killed. Um, but they pose as everyday objects, and this alien life is slowly killing off the crew one by one. In 30 separate encounters with this alien life form, 10 people have been killed. Hall um, completes some experiments that show that the base, which houses 100 people, is saturated with this alien life form that's taking on the image, taking on the, the physical form of different items in the base itself. He deduces that at the rate of things are going, the loss of the entire unit may be inevitable. They can't return to Earth because if they return to Earth with just one of these life forms on, on board, then it can maybe reproduce and spread and you know and spread on Earth and causing the end of humanity. It's impossible to return without bringing the alien life form there. The problem is they're infinitely divisible and thus cannot be easily eradicated. And you know you really want to think at this point that Dick has at least read who goes there which is the story that was the foundation for the thing, you know, which has the same idea that, you know, this entity is, is divisible. It can replicate other lives. It really can't be killed very easily. And just the one presence of one entity on Earth can be a threat to all humanity. Morrison concludes that since they apparently cannot imitate organic life, but only inorganic life, they should return home with, without anything. They should just return home naked, you know, with a ship completely empty. Uh, they contact a nearby cruiser and inform its captain that the, the base on Planet Blue will board their ship naked. And after some awkwardness about leaving everything behind, they begin to board the ship 10 minutes before, uh, you know, on schedule, 10 minutes before schedule. Um, but as they do that, that the, the scheduled ship arrives 10 minutes later and waits for the unit of, from Planet Blue to come, and they don't. So what actually happened here, obviously, was that the alien forms replicated the whole ship, touched down, and tricked these naked colonists and naked scientists and officers and soldiers to come onto the ship while they'd be consumed. Maybe they're going back to Earth. Um, we don't really know. But certainly the scheduled ship, the scheduled cruiser, arrives and finds nobody there and can only conclude that the colony was destroyed. So this is another story we can put down as, as one of Dick's early fun stories. Uh, it's probably not the most memorable, not the most serious, but it is a story that Dick wrote about a little bit. He, he, 
he has some kind of liner notes. Um, now, obviously, the collected works, collected stories of Philip K. Dick were published after he died. Um, so we didn't have him giving commentary as these stories were published about each one. A lot of anthologies by authors include kind of these author's notes. Um, we don't really have that here because they were published after he died. But we do have previous comments he may have made about other stories. And so the editors included these in there. And so at the back of the book, we have notes. And there's actually quite a bit on Colony. And Dick saw Colony as a reflection on paranoia. That's what he said in 1976, anyways, when he wrote on it. He, quote, this is from 1976, you know, 20 years after he wrote the story. Quote, objects sometimes seem to possess a will of their own, anyhow, to the normal mind. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They get in the way. They show an unnatural resistance to change. Now, we can ask the question whether we should trust Dick's own interpretations of his works. They were written, these were written in the last decade of his life. He became very religious towards the end of his life, or at least he had this quasi-religious point of view. Uh, this is when he was writing the exegesis and after he had his own kind of mystical experiences. So perhaps his politics and his metaphysics became a bit fuzzy later in his life. If that's the case, maybe we shouldn't fully trust what he wrote about this story in the past. But certainly this is an example of solid science fiction, which has many parallels to Campbell's Who Goes There. One subtext of Colony is that madness is driving human exploration. Um, I think that Dick is largely optimistic about interplanetary exploration, and we see this strongly in novels like Time Out of Joint. Um, we see it in The World Jones Made, and where else? There's a, this, it's slipping my mind, the zap gun. These are stories that have a very optimistic view of, 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 over, of exploration. Um, he sees that as the future of humanity, and he thinks it can be a place of rebirth. Now, he ha does present colonial societies out in the other planets as sometimes very banal, as in the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. But these are, if you weigh them, it seems he's got the, more, the positive view of over, over interplanetary exploration as is outweighing the negative. Um, he believed exp exploration was the key to reviving decadent cultures. Uh, this is what you see in The Variable Man, which we'll talk about soon, but also even in earlier stories like Mr. Spaceship, where, you know, the only way to get out of a rut as a culture, as a society, is to explore the far reaches of space. Um, now, here we see exploration run amok. The scientist Hall comments that Earth loses 100-man crews every day in these missions to explore other planets. So it's kind of as a way of saying that our, the loss of our, us our deaths won't be that big of a deal in the bigger picture of human exploration. It's almost like there's a mad rush to explore other planets with no concern about human life. Such losses are routine. One consequence of this rush is that disaster that the disaster that hit the te team on Planet Blue, this invasion by this foreign species, um, you know, they're unprepared for this stuff and these kind of losses are what you're going to expect when humanity is venturing out so quickly and recklessly to the stars. Now, one reading of this story certainly should be that Dick was commenting on consumption. But I, I'm not sure this is entirely true now. Um, you know, when you go back and reread it, it's not that clear that it's about consumption. Um, so I don't know. We, I guess you can 
look at it either way. I, I think if you look at Dick's career as a whole and what he says about consumption elsewhere, you want to perhaps throw that into the mix. But I'm not sure that was Dick's intent at the time. He certainly believed that consumer goods had a certain power over humanity and that much of the danger of consumer good rested in the banality and redundancy of consumer goods, that we just kind of surround ourselves with this artificial fakeness, um, that we allow our kind of spirit or essence to get worked up into consumer goods rather than real interpersonal connections. Uh, this is part of his fear about robotics, certainly. Uh, we see it a lot in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, this loss of the natural, this loss of the true human community and the replacement with, with banal consumer goods. What keeps this interpretation, at least within the realm of possibility, is Dick's emphasis on the relationship between people and material objects in their life. We think we have a close relationship with our microscope. We work with it every day, you know, or our computers, if you want to modernize the, the story. We got our computer that we work with every day. We're, we spend more time with this than we do our spouses or our family members. We have a real intimate relationship. If we lose our computer, we feel very frustrated. We, we, for some people, it's almost like a, a irretrievable loss when they lose their computer or their cell phone or something. We also have very intimate relationships with our towels or our rugs or these things. But the question is, how well do we really know these things? You know, I guess uh, the towel might be an example. We use our towel every day, but who knows what creepy crawly things are, are existing on it, what kind of fungus or, or whatever, or who else maybe just used it when you weren't looking, right? So there is a bit of, of some, there's a lot we maybe don't know about it. And as we get closer to AI, we, you know, we start to, we'll say things like, you know, I don't know why my computer's acting this way, or our computer doesn't normally act this way. We give it a little bit of agency and personality when we say things like this. We can be fooled, you know, by our objects. You know, it looks the same every day, but suddenly it acts differently. How can we sustain a close relationship with a material object when there are thousands of copies of that ex that exists? So you're in the coffee shop and you see someone else with your same computer, right? And you notice that, and it might be a little uncanny experience there. Uh, people have very intimate relations with their cars, but the cars are certainly replicable, and we see examples of the same car out on the roads every day. We find it creepy enough to ponder the possibility that each of us has a doppelganger, but in fact, we're surrounded by crude copies of the things that we're very close to and we're very intimate. The mimicry of the alien life on Planet Blue suggests the mastery of consumer replaceables. Quote, their mimicry is perfect. Of inorganic objects, at least, I looked through one of them, Stella, when it was imitating my microscope. It enlarged, adjusted, reflected, just like a regular microscope." End quote. Now, one interesting aspect of 3D printing, and, and hopefully the 3D printing revolution will have a bigger effect on our lives soon, is that it may actually make personalization of consumer goods more likely and more probable, right? Right, right now, we're, we're bound to what is available at, at at the store for most most of for most things we have to buy what is available at the store and those are mass replicable consumer goods but we're already starting to see personalization becoming more possible right with on-demand printing we can print you know our own collections of stories for instance um, and and pay for just the printing cost of it you know uh, there are programs that can do this with public domain stories for instance or public domain works you, know, you can kind of print your own edition of certain books uh, professors do this for their classes from time to time. What was else I thinking? Um, oh, t-shirts, another good example of that, right? Like t-shirts can 
can be easily made and personalized and printed on demand for, for people. And then once we have 3D printers in the home, more broadly, you know, how, you know, how easy it will be just to download something, personalize it, and then print it out. This may break this trap of the replicable consumer good. It may, we find, may finally get the, the, the individuality that consumerism so often promises to people but fails to deliver. Now, Dick will later use some of the concepts worked out in this story to actually apply them to consumer capitalism. In more than one novel, you have the idea of single-cell organisms that can be copied and can copy material goods and then be used as productive capacity so it's kind of come to, to allow mass consumption or mass production. Um, the idea, and I think this is in, um, uh, now wait for last year, that's the story. It's the now wait for last year where even organs can be made by these single cell organisms that can mimic things, but then they could be frozen into place. Uh, this is a really kind of fascinating idea. And as far as I know, this is Dick's invention in science fiction. If someone knows uh, where they've seen this before, let me know. I'd love to hear about it. So we certainly have a bit of the consumerist angle in the story. It's not as well-developed as it could have been, um, but it is the foundation for one of Dick's more compelling visions, and that is of consumer banality. Uh, it won't take him long to get to it. He certainly, you know, is in a story I'll get to pretty soon, Nanny, for instance, you have uh, even childcare being exported uh, to consumer goods. So with that, I will go. If you have any comments or, or thoughts about this story, please let me know. You can email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but if not, I'll, I'll, I'll sign off at this point, and I'll see you next time with another story by Philip K. Dick. What is